You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, even if it is a little rainy, but I promise a hearty Texas welcome. The skies will clear, the sun will shine, and everything will be just fine. And before I get started, I want to thank uh, the leadership of the SDPA for asking me to be the medical director of the summer meeting, so I consider that quite an honor. And I too would like to add my thanks to not only the whole CME committee, but Lauren in particular. Without her, it would have been extremely difficult for me to do my job at helping to organize this meeting. So thank you, Lauren, very much. Uh, and I'm looking forward to working with her replacement. So with that said, I'm going to start off uh, this day. Every day, the way we've planned it is sort of themed. So today is a what's new in, and then fill in the blanks. And I'm going to start off with what's new in the literature. And yes, some of this is from the JAAD, some of it's from uh, JAMA Derm, but a lot of it's from really obscure journals. And if you wonder how I found this stuff, it's because I like staying up late at 2 o'clock in the morning. There's nothing better than to read the journal, Indian Journal of Dermatology, Venereology, and Laparology. I mean, what else is there to do? So uh, this is a little obscure, but I've tried to pick, obviously there's a lot of literature, it's endless, but I've tried to pick a few interesting articles that hopefully will make you think about things during your daily practice and also make you aware of some things you might not have otherwise been aware of unless you stay up till 3 o'clock in the morning reading these oddball things. Uh, I have one small conflict of interest with this talk, but I don't think you'll see that as a big problem. And this is going to be uh, ARS, so you get some special credits. So we're going to run through our ARS questions first. Your patient vacationing in France develops a painful skin eruption and texts you begging for help. You should A, direct the patient to seek local evaluation. B, ask the patient to send you a cell phone picture. C, tell them you can't offer any advice. D, scold them for bothering you. Or E, none of the above will be helpful. Okay, direct the patient to seek local evaluation. Clearly the winner. Hmm, we'll see. Okay, second one. Your patient treated with inginol mebutate for actinic keratosis calls and states, I now have a lump where I applied the drug. What's your best advice? Direct the patient for psychiatric evaluation. Ask the patient to come in immediately as this might be skin cancer. Tell the patient to apply OTC hydrocortisone. Reassure them that this is a known and harmless side effect. None of the above is appropriate. Ah, nice spread. So when I'm done, we'll have one line that says 99%. Next. Sublesional blood flow patterns have recently been noted to help detect melanoma, basal cell, squamous cell, Kaposi's sarcoma, all of the above. Hmm, nice spread again with none of the above being the largest answer that's not correct. 
those of you who answered that, come up with a different answer at the end. Patients with hydradenitis may be at increased risk of ischemic stroke, myocardial infarction, cardiovascular mortality, major adverse cardiovascular events, or E, all of the above. And we've got a lot who think it's all of the above. We'll see later. Most surgery utilized with squamous cell carcinoma of the nail unit is associated with low recurrence rates, low cure rates, capable of evaluation for periosteal invasion associated with reduced number of digital amputations, or E, all of the above. Nice spread, good, we'll have a better answer later. Increased intracranial pressure occurring with oral administration of tetracyclines for acne is associated with visual field loss, papilledema on fundoscopy, blurred vision, headaches, or all of the above. And vast majority all of the above. Good job. Adults over 40 with persistent atopic dermatitis are at increased risk to die before collecting Medicare, develop Alzheimer's disease, develop emphysema, develop rheumatoid arthritis, or develop glioblastoma. Okay, nice split there, good. That'll be a bigger bar on one choice later. The United States Preventative Services Task Force, government, has recently concluded that routine skin screening is advisable for all adults over the age of 25. There is sufficient evidence to ban routine skin screening regardless of age. There is sufficient evidence to ban routine skin screening after the age of 30 due to the harm caused by skin biopsies. There is sufficient evidence to ban routine skin screening before the age of 30, or these are all wacky, that's E. And we've got a nice split, especially with the first and the last. Okay, good. You'll have a more clear answer later. There is increased risk of hospitalization due to infectious disease in a patient receiving which of these drugs for psoriasis? Etanercept, adalimumab, infliximab, sertolizumab, or ustekinumab? Beautiful. I love it when it goes like that. Just, it's perfect. So nobody knows the answer for sure. Excellent. So you'll learn something. Good. A recent meta-analysis suggests the following relationship between smoking and psoriasis. A, smoking adversely affects psoriasis severity. B, smoking reduces psoriasis severity. C, smoking induces psoriatic arthritis. D, smoking facilitates anti-TNF therapy. Or E, there is no consistent relationship between psoriasis and smoking adversely affects clearly the winner. We'll see. At which college are you most likely to become infested with bed bugs? University of Oklahoma, Sooners. Michigan State University, Spartans. Duke University, Blue Devils. Ohio State University, Buckwheats. And University of Alabama. The Tide. Okay, interesting. I like red. 
Okay, next and last, vitamin D deficiency affects the course of HIV infection in what way? A, there is no relationship. B, above normal levels of vitamin D lead to fewer opportunistic infections. C, normal vitamin D levels lead to more rapid recovery of T cell counts. D, lower than normal vitamin D levels are associated with greater risk of candidiasis. And E, lower than normal vitamin D levels are associated with a greater risk of Kaposi sarcoma. Wow, E is clearly the biggest leader, but we've got a lot of people who didn't vote for that. So there are a large number of these questions that are going to change at the end because you're going to learn something, and that means I actually can teach you something. So yay. So this is your smartphone, and it should be your assistant. And here's an interesting article from JAMA Dermatology that says, about 30% of patients who complain of a lesion or rash have nothing to see by the time they come to see you because it's evanescent. And then you're looking at them and they're looking at you and they're expecting a miracle for you to decide what it is and treat it when there's nothing to see. So the pictures taken by the patient with their cell phone and sent to you may confirm, modify, or strengthen a presumptive diagnosis that's already in your head based upon their description, or their description might be so bad that really the picture says it all. And so it, the article, this particular article, advocated that patients with a lesion or a rash should take a smartphone picture and at least keep it on their phone for their next visit when something appears or perhaps send it to you. And so at the end of each of these pieces of literature, I've tried to call out the major message so it'll be in red, and that patient-generated photos can be very helpful for your practice. In fact, I think the cell phone can be used as a health record and be very helpful for individuals where they can create an album and title it their health album, take pictures of their medications, their prescriptions, perhaps their last blood work when they're seeing someone who didn't order the blood work, who's not on the same electronic medical record. They can take pictures of their insurance cards so they don't have to carry them around, or if they forget them, they're with them, because everybody always has their cell phone. And I think that that's really true. I think we can use the cell phone. And I'm gonna give you a couple of real examples. These are real life. This was my patient in France, about whom the first ARS question was all about. And the patient said, I'm in pain. What should I do? What should I get? Where should I go? Yes. I could have said, oh, just seek local help. But when they sent this picture of grouped resolving blisters on a painful base, it's herpetic. I can't really tell because I don't see anything else. I did ask, were there other lesions? Is this herpes zoster or herpes simplex? Can't tell for sure, but it clearly looks herpetic. And how much trouble can you get in having someone take a cyclovir or one of its derivatives? And it's available OTC. In Europe, don't need a prescription. So I sent the patient to go get some acyclovir they took. The whole thing resolved and the rest of their trip wasn't ruined. So I think this is helpful. Or this patient who lives in Corpus Christi, so it would be hard for him to come to Houston, that's a long drive, and he said, He's got psoriasis and he's on systemic immunosuppression and he sent me a picture of his lip, 
which you can see is all swollen. He said, is this important? And I texted back because this could be certainly angioedema, but this could also be infectious. And I texted back, how are you feeling? What's going on? He said, it hurts like the Dickens, and I'm 101.4. So he's infected, and he's on systemic immunosuppression. So I said, now, go to your primary care doctor. Tell him, I think it's infected. It's basically like a boil. And you need to have this treated immediately. So he got some IV antibiotics, and two days later texted me, I'm doing much better with his picture from home. You can see some sort of weird-looking background rug or drapes or something there. So the, the bottom line is, I think this is very helpful, and I personally use this all the time. It's like telemedicine, right? Except it's your patient that you already know, and I think their cell phone can be quite helpful. Let's talk a little bit about surgery and cutaneous oncology. Anybody know what TV series this picture's from? It was a great series. It had a short run, but if you have on demand and you can go back and, and get it, it's called The Nick and it was about the Knickerbocker Hospital at the turn of the century in New York. And you can see this is the operating theater. What do you notice? Nobody has any gloves on. They washed their hands real well, and then they opened the abdomen, and they were messing around in there. And of course, a lot of their patients died from surgery, but a few people did survive. And it was the rudiments of surgery at the turn of the century. Absolutely accurate and fascinating, the series called The Nick for the Knickerbocker Hospital. So here's one, rapidly growing squamous cell carcinoma after treatment with inginol mebutate. It's two cases, it's just two. It's from Spain, chronic AK patients who were treated with inginol mebutate, Picato, at the proper dosing regimen daily for three days. And within two weeks, they had rapidly growing lumpy things, which four to five weeks later were clinically invasive squamous cell carcinoma. I'll show you the pictures in just a second. And the author said, we hypothesized that the inflammatory process induced by inginal mebutate in some AKs can accelerate their transformation to squamous cell carcinoma. I don't know that I necessarily agree or that we can say that that's true. Maybe it unmasked them. I think they probably were already squamous cell carcinoma, but they got inflamed and so now they were a little obvious or maybe there were a lot of AKs around that are gone and what's left you start worrying about. So I just wanted you to see this paper because it's in BJD and not everybody reads the British Journal of Dermatology routinely. And be aware of this, that if someone uses inginol mebutate and then starts developing lesions like this, that those could be squamous cell carcinoma. They're AK patients after all. They're predisposed to that. So if someone who you've used that drug properly, it's a good drug for actinic keratosis, then calls up and says, I got a lump now, have them in. Could be squamous cell carcinoma. Dynamic markers based on blood perfusion for selecting skin melanocytic lesions for biopsy. So this is Doppler, blood flow. We've used that forever, right, to look for clots in the venous system. Doppler blood flow emits the, the, the laser light and then reads it back and tells you what the blood flow is under the lesion. And it turns out that this was actually quite helpful. They studied 55 clinically suspicious pigmented lesions. 
30 were normal nevi, nine psoriasis patients. And then they biopsied all the pigmented lesions. They didn't need to biopsy the psoriasis, of course. And it turns out that with a very high degree of sensitivity and specificity, look at those numbers, 90 to 100, that this identified those lesions that were melanoma, non-invasive method based upon the blood flow underneath the lesion identifying with high degree of sensitivity and specificity. No laboratory test, I think, should ever replace your clinical judgment at biopsying or removing a suspicious pigmented lesion. But it's nice that we have things like Melafine. This is not commercial yet, but it will be next year. So this is being commercialized. It's nice that we have these things that give us extra ammunition if the patient's reluctant to have a biopsy, even though you want a biopsy or remove a lesion, that you can say, well, you know, I just did this test, and this test tells me that this is really likely to be a problem, and you can use that. And it may also help you to make the decision whether to biopsy or remove a lesion because it gives you a feeling for the nature of the lesion, and this is quite good. If you look at the, the larger of the two images here, that's the one that's really the best, and you can see that atypical and benign nevi sort of overlap. Uh, psoriasis, a little high blood flow, but the one that's highlighted in yellow with red on the outside, that's the melanoma, and that's really quite a difference in sublesional blood flow. So high degree of sensitivity and specificity, and there will be a small unit, you know, small portable unit that you may keep in your office in the not too distant future, and this takes just a few seconds and it may tell you, clue you, as to which lesions are most important. And then we have a few other interesting things like this. So you know that the total number of nevi, it's generally accepted that 100 some more recent papers have even suggested 50. The total number of benign, banal-looking common nevi on the body suggested an individual as at increased risk for melanoma. And so these authors were looking for a shortcut on that idea. And so they did this big study involving twins. And it turns out that over 11 on one arm, so you don't even have to look at the whole body, over 11 on one arm correlated with an increased risk of melanoma. How much simpler and safer could you get than to look at an arm? That's really simple and safe. And it's a warning sign of melanoma risk. And this is easily performed by anybody. Okay, yes, if you're not in dermatology, every little pigmented thing's probably gonna be called a mole, and they'll be counting seborrheic keratoses, but you and I know the difference, for the most part, between seborrheic keratoses and nevi, and this is interesting. You know, I wouldn't bet the farm on it, but certainly if somebody has a lot of nevi, we know that, they're at increased risk of melanoma, and here, even if they have 11 on one arm, they're at increased risk of melanoma. And let's face it, we're human. I do this, I'm sure most of you do this too. 
when we do a skin survey for some reason, the patient has a history of past skin cancer or melanoma, the family has a strong history of melanoma, patient's concerned about moles that are changing or a specific mole, and you're doing a total body skin exam. I know we're diligent about the whole exam, but don't you look a little differently when you're really, really worried? You've got the patient who's already had a melanoma, already had a squamous cell carcinoma, two basal cell carcinomas. Boy, I look a little more diligently, maybe a little slower. I pull out my dermatoscope more readily. So in someone who's got 11 nevi on one arm, put them in that same category where as human beings, we look a little more with a jaundiced and suspicious eye. I found this to be absolutely fascinating, British Journal of Dermatology. And this was scary. Looking at cutaneous melanoma in women less than 50 years of age, so they were 49 or under, and they studied 462 women with case controls. And it turns out that the women who develop melanoma during pregnancy or within one year postpartum, their melanoma carries a worse outcome risk, a worse prognosis, risk of death five times greater, risk of metastasis almost nine times greater, risk of recurrence after removal nine plus times greater. Now this is interesting because years and years ago, back in the 1950s, women who were of reproductive potential who developed melanoma were often counseled to be sterilized, to have a hysterectomy because they thought that melanoma and subsequent pregnancy would make the melanoma come back. It was carried a bad prognosis. Then the pendulum swung the other way. And most of the papers from the 80s and 90s said that the melanoma prognosis was based on the thickness of melanoma and was irrespective of any hormonal events like oral contraceptives, pregnancy, et cetera, et cetera. Now the pendulum swung a little bit the other way again. Very well done study. It's pause for thought. Again, a young woman who during pregnancy or within one year of delivery has had a melanoma, you need to keep an eye on all your melanoma patients, but that particular patient you need to keep a special eye on. So if they miss one of their follow-up visits, you need to have one of your staff call and say, you know, Mrs. Jones, you need to come in and have us look at you. Can I reschedule your appointment? Don't let them fall between the cracks because look at these risks of recurrence, metastases, and yes, even death. Melanoma with pregnancy, not a good, not a good thing according to this most recent study. And then speaking of melanomas, this is just an interesting thing that I found. We now are using herpes virus cold sore, HSV-1, to infect and then explode melanoma cells. All sorts of new interesting therapeutics for melanoma, which hopefully you'll hear a little bit about from Dr. Deinhardt later. How about Mohs surgery for squamous cell carcinoma of the nail? So you look at a digit like this and you hope 
can the, can the digit be saved or is this going to require an amputation at one of the digital joints? And this is a lot less severe. This is a subungual lesion. This is intraoperatively while the patient is having Mohs surgery. And it turns out this was a nice prospective long-term study. So they have five years follow-up on all their cases, 43 patients with 53 nail unit squamous cell carcinomas. Some were in situ, a few were microinvasive, but the vast majority were truly invasive squamous cell carcinoma. And it turns out that most surgery for squamous cell carcinoma involving the nail unit leads to very high cure rates with very small numbers of recurrences. And this is a way to preserve tissue Yes, but in this case, it's a way to reserve, preserve the digit, whereas otherwise, you know, you'd have to take off the terminal phalanx. So this is very nice for in the skilled hands of a Mohs surgeon. You may be able to save someone's function and form in things that are important, like your fingers. Mohs surgery for squamous cell carcinoma of the nail unit. This is the government speaking. The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. And they look into things that we do as prevention. And then they make pronouncements based upon evidence that they analyze. And here was their pronouncement about routine skin screenings. The United States Preventative Services Task Force concludes that the current evidence is insufficient to assess the balance of benefits and the harms, risks, associated with visual skin cancer screening in adults. This is not exactly a rip-roaring endorsement for periodic screenings, is it? In fact, it's a pretty negative one. And they said then, they went on to say, this information is intended to help healthcare decision makers. Really, it doesn't help us at all. What it is, is it's for the policymakers and the insurance companies. The first report may be, the final report may be used in whole or in part as the basis for the development of clinical practice guidelines. Hmm. Final report may be used in whole or in part as the basis for reimbursement and coverage policies. Many of the studies that were included in this analysis were very, very old. Many were done outside the United States, and the vast majority did not incorporate any of our modern technology, like using a dermatoscope. And yet, they did stress the harm that could be done by doing biopsies that ended up not showing skin cancer. So while they didn't ban or say we shouldn't do any more periodic skin screenings, it was really a very negative-toned report on periodic skin screening, even in patients with a past history of non-melanoma and melanoma skin cancers. They don't think we should be doing this, basically. And can't you see the insurance companies just jumping for joy, using this as part of their, quote, decision-making on reimbursement policies? Yay, yay, yay. So you've got to be very, very wary of what's going on in your national organization and the American Academy of Dermatology, American College of Mohs Surgeon, 
All of our national organizations need to watch out for reports like this from government agencies that can be snatched up by people who pay the bills to stop paying bills, which basically means we don't get to deliver care that we think is totally appropriate. This was a little scary to me. Let's move on to acne. Delayed development of intracranial hypertension after discontinuation of tetracycline. So this is a 14-year-old girl, it's a case report, who took tetracycline for seven months for acne. Acne was better, so she stopped the tetracycline, and about a month afterwards, she had headaches and blurred vision. So she went in, ultimately, to see an ophthalmologist. She had papilledema. She got some acetazolamide, and this all went away. But the idea is to remember that increased intracranial pressure may be related to the tetracycline derivatives, and it can even occur after they've been stopped. And remember, our judicious use of antibiotics now and the guidelines that have been recently issued and many papers about antibiotic stewardship in the treatment of chronic diseases like acne and rosacea are that we should limit our use of oral antibiotics in particular, and we usually use the tetracycline class drugs. But even if you stop at three months, which is often suggested, or four months, your patient can end up like this. And look at the, there's the above is the appearance, fundoscopic appearance. And there's below about four months later, so it had returned to normal. And what's scary is while she was affected, the black on that one picture is her loss of visual field. Oh my God, she's only seeing about this. So just keep in mind, this does occur with the tetracycline derivatives, and it can even occur after they're stopped. Headache, blurred vision, and papilledema on fundoscopy. A few things about psoriasis. Okay, this one was really bothersome. American Journal of Clinical Dermatology, and they used a very sensitive cognitive assessment test, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Survey, and it turns out that psoriasis patients, compared to age-sex match cohorts, all across the age spectrum, from young adults to older adults, had cognitive impairment with an almost 4, 3.64 odds ratio. And that cognitive impairment, one, involved visual spatial, so sort of orienting things in space, but even more worrisome, executive decision-making may be impaired. It adds to the many comorbidities we already associate with psoriasis. Psoriasis is not just a few epidermal cells whose cell turnover has gone awry. It's a systemic inflammatory disorder which can be associated with all the components of the metabolic syndrome, with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, even if they don't smoke, and now with cognitive impairment. So keep that in mind when you're talking to your psoriasis patient and maybe asking the psoriasis patient to make some judgment calls. And then in addition on psoriasis, let's talk about hospitalizations due to infections. So this was a retrospective study. It's not as good as prospective, but it was a pretty well done large study. And they looked at psoriasis patients who got non-biologic systemic therapy the 3-TNF-alpha 
drugs for psoriasis, and phototherapy. And the only thing that was increased risk as monotherapy, only thing that was increased risk for hospitalization related to infections was infliximab. That's the drug. Now it turns out if they also got systemic steroids, either related to their psoriasis or for some other ancillary thing, like psoriatic arthritis, then the steroids, regardless of anything else they were getting, increased their risk of hospitalization as well. But without steroids, ex-systemic steroids, about the only thing they found was increased risk of hospitalization for infections. Those are serious infections, was infliximab. Not etanercept, not adalimumab. So this one is really a sad one for me to report on. It's tumor necrosis factor inhibitor, primary failure, followed by ustekinumab. What happens? To me, when there was primary failure of a TNF-alpha inhibitor, my go-to drug has traditionally been ustekinumab. Of course, now we have the IL-17 inhibitors. We have some new small molecule oral drugs. We have other options. But my go-to drug traditionally has been the only IL-1223 inhibitor, ustekinumab. Well, it turns out this is single center, retrospective, but fairly large and over a large number of years and the bottom line was if somebody already failed at least one TNF-alpha inhibitor, they were less likely to get as good a response as with ustekinumab as if they had never failed a TNF-alpha inhibitor. And while it was not statistically significant, but it was clearly trending this way. The more TNF-alpha inhibitors the patient failed, the less likely they were to respond to ustekinumab. So here we are with using a TNF-alpha, which now, because of step edits, usually has to be done before you can consider ustekinumab or one of the IL-17 inhibitors. We have two now, and we'll have more, and we'll have other agents. So TNF-alpha is going to be your first systemic agent. Usually they have to fail. And yet, we have failures of alternate mechanisms of action. So these TNF-alpha failure patients probably are inherently resistant to our systemic biologic drugs. Doesn't mean you wouldn't do it, of course. But I used to paint the picture, I think where this is important practically, is I used to paint the picture, well, you failed this, but now I'm gonna do a different drug that works in a totally different way, that has a pretty good outcome, generally speaking, and I'm very hopeful this will do well. And now what I'm telling patients is I've changed my verbiage. We all have standard verbiage we use in certain situations, right? It just flows off your tongue because you've done it 100,000 times. So I've changed my standard verbiage, so we're gonna try a different drug that, drug that works in a different way, but I can't guarantee that this is gonna work any better than what you just did that didn't work. I'm not quite as optimistic sounding. I still want them to do it, obviously, but this is a pause for thought, for sure, publication. How about smoking psoriasis? This is a great picture, isn't it? You hit their psoriasis and their cigarette all in one little picture. So it turns out, you know, is cigarette smoking ever good for anything? Actually, yes. 
there's an inverse relationship with the occurrence of aphthostomatitis because it thickens the skin and it makes it less likely for someone to get aphthostomatitis. But short of that, I can't think of much, in, much other situation where I'd be telling patients, yeah, go ahead and smoke your camels. Well, it turns out in this comprehensive, it's a meta-analysis of literature, smoking releases free radicals, those stimulate cell signaling pathways, which of course end up leading to the release of cytokines, including TNF-alpha, which we just talked about blocking for psoriasis. And so the bottom line is smoking makes psoriasis worse. What's the message there? Well, certainly it makes it worse. The other thing is if you see someone with a pack of cigarettes sitting in their pocket and they're a psoriasis patient and you're struggling trying to get them under control, you can look them straight in the face and say, I know you didn't read the warning on the pack of cigarettes about cancer and emphysema, but you know what's making your psoriasis worse? There were a couple of articles a few years ago about smoking and wrinkles, how smoking aggravated facial rhytids, and I used that very successfully to get people to stop smoking. I guess they don't care about cancer, but they do care about wrinkles. And I think they care about psoriasis in the same way, or they wouldn't be sitting in your office. So psoriasis is worsened by smoking. Ergo, stop smoking. Good. Atopic dermatitis. Okay, another negative thing. I hate to be so negative, but I have a couple of fun things that are positive at the end. So atopic dermatitis, big, big database in Germany where everybody's on a centralized health system, 2.4 million. They were surveying almost 50,000 adults with atopic dermatitis over 40 years of age, and they were at increased risk, notice the relative risk factors, for rheumatoid arthritis and inflammatory bowel disease. They thought they might be at increased risk for diabetes, but they weren't certainly with type 1. It was um, a little equivocal for type 2. The odds ratio was like 1.1. So definitely rheumatoid arthritis, definitely some increased risk of inflammatory bowel disease. What does that mean? That means your atopic patient who's sitting in front of you, who's an adult, now over 40, does have some increased risk. And you might just want to very quickly ask them about, are any of their joints hurting, rheumatoid arthritis? Do they have any bowel symptoms? And sometimes they'll ascribe bowel system symptoms to things that you might be giving them from a treatment standpoint for their atopic dermatitis, but might be giving them some antibiotics because it's secondarily infected and they might have a touch of diarrhea. Well, yeah, that might be true, or they might be in the early stages of inflammatory bowel disease, and they need a referral to a gastroenterologist. So just keep this in mind that this is an association. And then we have hydradenitis suppurativa. With its association, its retrospective Danish study, almost 6,000 patients, again, um, many years, over many years, the relative risk factor for MI, ischemic strokes, cardiovascular-associated death, major cardiovascular events, they're all high. All-cause mortality is high. So hydradenitis, the numbers are even larger than psoriasis. Hydradenitis is associated with all the cardiovascular side effects, just like psoriasis, 
MI, stroke, cardiovascular death. So if someone who has hydradenitis is sitting in your office and they start clutching at their chest, you need immediately to get them to a different office, right? I mean, I think it's fair. I do, and we know this now, um, Dr. Gelfand in, in uh, Pennsylvania has done a very nice job of pointing out to us how severe psoriasis in young people even can be associated with severe cardiovascular disease. Well, it's also true of hydradenitis, and I think it's fair to warn the patients of these risks so they don't take episodic chest pain or transient blurred vision that's really a TIA. They don't take these lightly, that they know they're at increased risk for these things, and they should report to their primary care health provider immediately if they have symptoms related to this. So a few miscellaneous things. Minoxidil, does it work at all? Well, here's a 104-week study. They had first randomized control and then an open-label extension that lasted two years. And at the end of those two years, the counts in the frontotemporal and vertex scalp of hairs in the patients who were enrolled in this study, it's N of 70, it's not a huge study, but the counts were absolutely no different before and after. So you're not going to turn people into Don King by giving them topical minoxidil. But the fact that the counts were no different is good in this sense that at least topical minoxidil looks like it can function pretty well in stabilizing androgenetic alopecia. At least it puts a fence around the disease. And here's another one, vitamin D. You know vitamin D's now been looked at and found to be possibly involved or vitamin D deficiency involved, possibly pharmacologic doses of vitamin D involved in all sorts of things recently, alopecia areata, vitiligo, et cetera, et cetera. Well, here's HIV. And they had 398 adult HIV positive patients. It's no longer H-A-A-R-T, highly active antiretroviral therapy. The proper terminology is CART combination antiretroviral therapy. And they were assessed periodically over a year and a half. And the bottom line is normal vitamin D levels, normal, led to recovery of T cell counts and quicker recovery of T cell counts than in those who did not have normal vitamin D. It's not the same thing as using vitamin D as a therapy but people who are HIV positive should be maintained in a normal vitamin D range to enhance their recovery, immunologic recovery, once they're placed on appropriate combination antiretroviral therapy. Not pharmacologic high doses of vitamin D, but at least be normal. And I point this out, not that we treat primarily, that we administer primarily antiretroviral therapy, but we often make the diagnosis based upon the things that we encounter in dermatology, you know, like bad zoster at a young age or a horrible molluscum and thrush and things that we see that end up 
so that we look at HIV serologic tests and make the diagnosis. This is a something if you have a patient, you know is HIV positive, ask them if they've had a vitamin D level, and if they haven't, you can request it or have them requested of who's ever primarily taking care of them. Digital myxoid cysts. Those are a couple of my pictures. So I like to open them and get the stuff out. It's kind of fun to do that, all that little gelatinous material coming out. And there's at least a couple of papers that say that repeated poking and removal of gelatinous material is one way to treat this. Sometimes they do need surgery. It goes all the way. This may communicate with the joint. So I don't know that this is going to receive massive adoption, but using polydocanol, which is used for sclerotherapy, and in these 63 patients, they took that gelatinous stuff out of the digital myxoid cyst, and then they replaced it with polydocanol, just poked it in there, just restored the shape and size. And they did this once, and some patients they did it repeatedly, and ultimately in 84% of patients so treated, they got complete resolution without any surgery. Interesting alternative method of treating digital myxoid cysts. I'm not necessarily promoting it for that, but here it is in the literature. Devices, I'm just gonna point this out, this was an FDA safety warning about filler materials getting into the blood vessels and causing all sorts of problems. You should know what you're doing. Don't delegate this to the high school graduate who's a medical assistant. It should be done by a healthcare provider. This is the happy device. This is called the DignaCap, like for dignity, Digni, D-I-G-N-I, cap. It's a cooling cap, which has been used in Europe for a very long time in patients who receive chemotherapy so they don't lose their hair. And you know there are actually people, I worked for four years in MD Anderson Cancer Hospital as their dermatologist, and there were people who refused chemotherapy for their cancer because they didn't want to lose their hair. Losing hair is a major psychological downer, major league, and this cap circulates, it fits tightly, it circulates cool liquid, it's apparently very cool, and at first a little bit stingy, burny cool, but patients get used to it, and they do this with every episode of chemotherapy. It starts a little before, during chemotherapy, and after chemotherapy, and three quarters of patients have major improvement in their hair loss compared to what's expected. It is only at present approved for chemotherapeutic regimens related to breast cancer. But studies are underway with all sorts of chemotherapeutic agents for all sorts of cancer because that's how it's used everywhere else in the industrialized world except the United States. So you'll see this now in widespread use. Right now it's kind of expensive because you basically have to rent the unit and it's $400 a time, but it's major, major, major good. The other good thing is that so far for breast cancer patients, almost every insurance company pays for it. So if you have a patient who's going to have chemotherapy, certainly for breast cancer, and they ask you because you're the expert in skin, hair, and nails, they'll probably ask the oncologist, and you know how the oncologist answers this question, look, it's cancer, you'll lose some hair. I gotta treat your cancer, we'll worry about your hair later. You, being more empathetic about skin, hair, and nails, can suggest that they ask their oncologist about 
the Digni cap, D-I-G-N-I, cooling cap that will protect their hair. And here's my itchy conclusion. Bed bugs. This is the top bed bug cities in the United States reported by Orkin in January of 2016, plus the pluses and minuses is what they did on this last compared to 2014. So Los Angeles in number two is up to, that means it was number four in 2014. And I just want to point this out. I'm not biased at all, of course, but there's Columbus, Ohio, the home of Ohio State, as number five in the bed bug city list in the United States. I would also like to point out that Columbus, Ohio is in the top 10 cities for syphilis. <laughs> Why do I do this? Because I'm a graduate of the University of Michigan. <laughs> bed bugs in Columbus. So if you have relatives who are thinking about colleges. If they like bed bugs, have them go to Ohio State. Thank you. Let's do our post-test. Your patient vacationing in France develops that skin eruption. What are you going to do? Direct them to local evaluation. Have them send you a picture. Tell them you can't offer any advice to tell them don't bother me. Okay, so most of you now would have them send you a cell phone picture. That's really good. Okay, we'll skip right through these. Your patient treated with inginal mebutate for AKs now has a lump. You would tell them that they need a shrink, that they should come in, they should smear hydrocortisone on it, that this is harmless or none of the above. And now the vast majority of you said, come on in, could be skin cancer, based on your literature. See how we're changing the numbers? Good. And we'll skip that. Sublesional blood flow patterns have recently been added to detect. Melanoma, basal cell, squamous cell, Kaposi sarcoma, or all of the above. And survey says melanoma, correct. Yay for 95. Those of you who wrote E, I hear the plumber's union has openings. Okay, let's do number four. We're doing better. Patients with hydradenitis may be at increased risk of ischemic growth, myocardial infarction, cardiovascular mortality, major adverse cardiovascular events, all of the above. Yes, 98% of you had the right answer, and clearly we've done a little better. We were pretty good there before. Most surgery utilized with squamous cell carcinoma, the nail unit, low recurrence, low cures, periosteal invasion, reduced number of digital amputations, or all of the above. And, you know, 
actually, I think D is, was not specifically stated in the article, but it certainly makes sense to me, and I think it's a correct answer. So I think both of the ones that were primarily chosen are correct. They did not specifically say it reduced digital amputations, but it must. It must, right? Okay, next one. Increased intracranial pressure occurring with oral administration of tetracyclines is associated with visual field loss, big black thing on your visual fields, fundoscopy showing papilledema, blurred vision, headaches, or all of the above. Yes, absolutely, all of the above. And remember, the point of the article I showed you was even after they stopped, that girl, it's a one case report, but even after she stopped, her, her problems began a month later. So even delayed onset can happen. So we did very well with this one. And we improved somewhat, we were already pretty good. Adults over 40 with persistent atopic dermatitis are at increased risk to die, develop Alzheimer's, develop emphysema, rheumatoid arthritis, or glioblastoma, which is the known association now. On the Hudson River line. I'm in a new yes. Most of you got this right, rheumatoid arthritis. That is the now known association, along with inflammatory bowel disease. Must warn the patient. And how did we do? We did much better. Excellent. United States Preventative Services Task Force recently concluded all this stuff. It's a lot of verbiage. It, it, the right answer is none of the above. Don't even vote. It, it's, you know, basically, what did they do? They said, we have no evidence that this is useful, even though they used old studies, many done outside the US, and almost none of which used dermoscopy. So kind of a waste of time. None of the above, but that's not the important point. Their increased risk of hospitalization due to infectious disease in patients receiving which of these drugs? Yeah, infliximab. And remember the other thing that increases your risk of infection is if they got steroids, for whatever reason. Psoriatic arthritis or something unrelated to their psoriasis. And how do we do? Oh, much, much, much better. Good. Recent meta-analysis suggests the following relationship between smoking and psoriasis makes it worse, reduces the psoriasis severity, induces psoriatic arthritis, facilitates TNF-alpha, or there's no consistent relationship. Good, absolutely. Just think, if anybody asks you anything about smoking, say it can't be helpful. That's the bottom line. 
and we were already pretty good and we did even better, good. Just a couple more. Which college are you most likely to become infested with bed bugs? Now y'all really ripped the tide pretty nasty there. You said University of Alabama, if I recall correctly, was the number one answer, but what's the right answer? Let's vote. Make sure you all have this right. Yeah, those Ohio State people, <laughs> full of bed bugs and syphilis. And then, <laughs> yes, and you all got this right now. And so last but not least, vitamin D deficiency affects the course of HIV infection. There's no relationship. Above normal levels of vitamin D lead to fewer opportunistic infections. Normal vitamin D levels lead to more rapid recovery of T cell counts. Lower than normal vitamin D levels are associated with candidiasis, and lower than normal vitamin D levels are associated with cap issue sarcoma. Go ahead and vote on this one. Dragnet. And the vast majority of you now got this right. You just want to make sure your HIV positive patient is normal level of vitamin D, right? And major improvement there. We went from, you know, low double digits all the way to 95%. So thank you very much for your kind attention. I hope you've learned something from this review of the literature. You know, of all the things I mentioned in this talk, the one I really, really, really want you to walk away with the most is the Dignicap for chemotherapy-induced hair loss. Having had a wife and a daughter who both had cancer, both had chemotherapy, both lost their hair, I saw that up close and personal. And I'm gonna tell you something, if you can retain your hair and go through your chemotherapy, it is so much better for the patient's psyche and really encourages them to get their full course of chemotherapy. Really want you to remember that one. Um, regarding laser Doppler study and melanoma detection, was melanoma in situ included? No. What was the range, the size range for melanomas detected? Honestly, I don't remember or it wasn't included. I, I just don't have that answer. Doppler melanoma in situ? No. It was all invasive melanoma. Thoughts on combining a premolast with a biologic? Case studies suggested benefit. Yes, it's off-label. So many combination therapies are off-label for psoriasis. That includes using some of the new oral agents like a premolast. You use your best judgment using combination therapy. Premolast is a nice drug because you don't have to worry about a bunch of lab studies. As a monotherapy, if you look just at POSI-75s, or now POSI-100s with the IL-17 drugs, it's not a great drug, but it's a useful drug, and it may be very useful in combination, but that is off-label. Is that minoxidil study just in men? It was just in men. But I think minoxidil works better in women anyhow, so at least in men, you can say it holds the line. Maybe it actually grows hair in women. Do you check vitamin D level in hair loss patients? I do, but it generally doesn't help me much. In alopecia areata patients, that patient, yes, because there is literature to suggest that pharmacologic doses of vitamin D actually helps alopecia areata. 
So that's in the literature. So in that case, yes, absolutely for sure. Punch biopsy versus shave biopsy for squamous cell. I think you need an adequate, an adequate piece of tissue. You don't want to shave a lot of keratin and leave the poor pathologist with not a lot to look at. So I really prefer depth. I usually do a punch or a very small excisional biopsy, where you actually take incisional biopsy, where you take a piece of tissue. How much of the polydocanol would you inject? It's just enough. I've done it twice now. I held my, you know, crossed my fingers and held my breath. It's just enough to reinflate the myxoid cyst to its previous level. So, you know, it's a very small amount. We're talking about a tenth, two tenths of a cc. It's just enough to reinflate it. You're not pushing it in and mashing. Punch biopsy versus shave, swimming cell I've already talked about. I like depth. So I think that's it for me. Thank you very much, and I'll see you during the course of the meeting. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.